Let's pray. Father in heaven, I come before you and I ask that these words which are from you, Jesus, that you spoke, that these words would penetrate into our hearts, into our minds, and God, go deep into our soul and penetrate every area that our spirits would be alive to you. So, Holy Spirit of God, I ask that you would speak through me the words that you have placed in my heart, and even more than that, that your spirit would take my spirit and allow people to hear you, and that I would hear you. And then we'd be obedient to what you call us to, in Christ's name. Amen. You know, some words sting deeply, and none other than the words, too late. Like, have you ever gone up to a movie theater, and, you know, it's not a huge sting, this one, but you go up to a movie theater line, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. I remember I did this when I first was back in high school, probably one of my first dates, and it was one of those premieres, and you get there, and you're waiting, you're waiting. I got up there, there was two in front of us, and they said, we're done, we're sold out of tickets, and I hear the words, too late. I didn't know what I was going to do the rest of that night. Some of you looked at your wife on 4th of July as you were drenched with sweat and you said, yeah, I forgot to call the air conditioning guy last week. I thought I'd call this week and you both knew it's too late. Some words sting. Some actually cut like a knife, deep. As the paramedics arrive on the scene and look up into the anxious eyes of those who are gathered around and they say, I'm sorry, we were too late. Or it's a doctor shows the mass on the MRI and says, if only we had been able to diagnose this six months ago, I'm afraid we're too late. Or as an HR person looks at your application and resume and says, wow, you would be perfect for this position, but we filled it. I'm afraid you were just a couple days too late. I remember standing before a hearing specialist who had been checking the loss of hearing in my left ear due to a damaged nerve, a virus, and he said, if only we could have treated this within the first two weeks, yet you noticed it, but now it's too late. Those words don't even sting. Sometimes they cut deeply depending on what the situation and circumstances are for you. And what I find is interesting that Jesus tells this parable to capture the attention of those of us who are his followers. That's his audience that he's speaking to when he tells these three stories, these parables. It's all about being ready, living prepared, buying up the opportunities when you see them so that you don't have to hear the words too late. The words that when you hear them often will call up feelings of guilt and remorse and regret and with it comes pain and sorrow because an opportunity that you had is missed. Jesus tells these three parables to instruct his followers that they're to live wise and faithful lives until the day he returns. So after you read this story in Matthew 24, where after he gives in 23 these condemnations to the people of Israel who missed their opportunity, the leaders missed their opportunities, and only if he could gather them like chicks in his arms. And he says, as he's walking from the temple area, God has left the house. It's desolate. It's a ghost town. No longer is God there because Jesus was God walking out. He goes to the hillside. And he says that house is going to fall. And the disciples ask him a couple questions. They don't quite understand. They ask him two things. When will the temple be torn down? And then what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? I think they thought they were both the same. And so Jesus, having to explain this, goes on in chapter 24, verses 4 through 35, and he, he talks about his return, but he, he, he talks first about 
the whole idea that the signs that will be that will show that when the temple is torn down, which would be just within a generation, he even tells them within a generation, you'll see it. You'll see it like the buds on a tree that tell you the signs of fruits coming or the leaves are falling. You'll see the season and you'll know the temple will fall. And in that same process, he goes on. And I'm thankful for Peter Kapsner who last week spoke and shared with you the second part of this, because they asked Jesus, well, when will this happen? And Jesus says, you know what, guys, you're not going to really know. When I return, when the, 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 the end of the age, he says in verse, in verse 36, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. He, Jesus himself, God in flesh, was limited even in that knowledge, only the Father in heaven. He says, expect it to be unexpected like the days of Noah. Expect it to be a surprise, like a thief that robbed your home. Because if you would have known the time had come, you'd have prepared for it. And so Jesus goes on in these three stories in order to share with us this point, that the wise and faithful servant, which he shares at the very end of this chapter 24, is ready, prepared, and seizes the moment, not knowing when, but always ready, always prepared. And so the parable of the ten virgins, as you look here at chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, here's the predicament people will find themselves in, says Jesus, if they have failed to prepare themselves for my return. And he gives a simple contrast. He talks about the faithless and foolish virgins and the faithful and wise. The foolish person is basically unprepared and the wise person is ready Always prepared. Now, I want to again remind you that this is a parable, not an allegory, because if you go through and you read some commentators, they'll do what they used to do back in the first century when in the Jewish schools they had these great allegorical schools where they would take a story and they'd try and figure out what everything meant. Why isn't the bride there? What does the oil mean? What are the ten significant meaning? And, and this isn't what a parable does. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about genre analysis, which is such an important thing. It's a hermeneutical principle. It's an interpretive way of understanding what is it, the kind of literature that I'm reading. And the kind of literature that we're reading is a parable. And parables have one main idea. There are some things that you might find some coherence to. But basically, you're to look at the one main idea and draw what are some applications around that. And that's what we're going to do. So the main point is preparation. Look at verses 25, chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Verse 3, the foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. And the bridegroom was a long time in coming and they became drowsy and fell asleep. All of them did. And the point is simply, be prepared. If we look at the story with Western lenses, it seems really pretty strange. In fact, it actually may seem foreign, which it is. It's a wedding in Palestine during the first century, which are quite different than the weddings that you would experience here in this church or in other churches. A wedding in that day was a great occasion. It was often celebrated for weeks. For sure, a week it was celebrated. And the whole village turned out to accompany the couple to their new home. 
And they would go the longest possible route in order to receive all the wishes and all the glad tidings from all the people that they passed on their way. So they would make this long train. That's maybe what you see in some ways when you see the car with all the little, uh, comes maybe from that with all the little um, cans making all the noise as they pull out just married. And the idea then was that you went in these small villages, which they mostly were, went all over the place, even into the countryside, and you went and you, you brought everyone along with you. In fact, an old Jewish saying runs like this, everyone from six to 60 will foul the marriage drum. The rabbis even agreed that many might even abandon for that period of time the study of the Torah to share in the wedding. And when a couple got married, they did not go away for a honeymoon like we would see couples do. They stayed at home and they would do so for a week, keep an open house, and they were treated and even addressed as prince and princess. It was intended to be the most joyful week in their lives. And to the festivities of that week, their chosen friends were admitted. So they had a list of who could come and who couldn't. And it was not only the marriage ceremony, the foolish virgins, when they missed it, they didn't miss just the ceremony, they actually missed the whole week of celebration. There's a, in Barclay's commentary, Dr. J. Alexander Findlay tells us of an actual wedding he saw in the first part of the 20th century in Galilee. And as they were driving with his guide, he saw ten maidens dancing and playing musical instruments. And he asked the guide, uh, what, what are they doing? So now just think, this is about a hundred years ago or less. And the guide said they were to keep the bride company until the groom showed up. And Dr. Finley said, well, let's, let's wait and see. And the guide laughed and went on to explain, no one knows when the bridegroom will appear. The groom comes unexpectedly, sometimes in the middle of the night or at the break of dawn or at sunset. But when the groom does come, all will know because he sends a man ahead of him shouting, awake, awake, if it's in the night. Or behold, behold, the bridegroom is coming. And this can happen at any time, the guide said. So the bridal party has to be ready for the procession at any time. And so do those maidens have to have their, their lights lit and available to go. What I find is interesting, although this may be foreign, this whole drama is a parable, is actually reenacted in the 20th century, obviously with some differences over 2,000 years, but still quite a few similarities in the Middle East. And so Jesus warns against this um, living life unprepared. The foolish follower fails to prepare in a number of ways. And so what I want to share with you is some important lessons that I think you can learn when you look at this parable and the main point of being ready. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me to be a follower of Jesus Christ and be prepared as you live your life day to day? Now, the first thing I want you to recognize is be prepared, prioritize. That's what that seems to be said here in this parable. The foolish follower of Jesus just failed to prioritize. These five virgins thought they could put things off to later. The wise person, though, prioritized what was most important and necessary and essential. So in Matthew 25, verses 3 through 5, as you continue on in this passage, it says the foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps, and the bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. The falling asleep isn't the problem. It's the issue of not having oil and done what you needed to do to prioritize getting oil. It was failing to prioritize what was most necessary. And you can imagine how easy that might be, because I've been around, I grew up with two daughters and, and a wife, so I have a number of women around me, and, um, you know, 
I've been to weddings, many weddings, and you go in often, and I just did one not too long ago, and here's the, I went in where the bridesmaids were to go pray with them, and I, I came back five minutes later, they're getting their hair just right, up, down, around, over, curly, straight. What jewelry, bracelet, necklace, earrings, shoes, pumps, flats, black or red? Or, in this case, buy oil. The one thing that gets you into the possession, and the one thing, if you don't have it, gets you locked out. No doubt there were many decisions, but there was one that was essential, because life is about eternity. And if you take this parable and you take the the point of this and the idea of prioritizing this life that we live is merely a training for what lies ahead. It's what you do in this life and what you prioritize, what you begin to put your focus on and what you set your sights on will make a difference, Jesus tells us, for when he comes and for the life to come. There are two certain things in this life, right? The taxes and death, right? Or maybe I should say more taxes and death. The parable forces us to examine our life. It asks the question, what are you doing with your life that will last? What are you investing in that will outlive you? How are you preparing your soul? Are you rearranging your hair, trying on different bracelets, looking at what shoes to wear? Or are you doing those things that are most necessary? There's a true story from the sinking of the Titanic. There was a frightened woman who, she found her place on one of those lifeboats that was just about to be lowered into the raging um, North Atlantic Ocean, which is just, you know, bubbling. And she suddenly thought of something she needed. And so she said to the person who was standing there, she asked permission if she could just return to her stateroom because her stateroom was one of the more expensive ones. It was up near the top and she could get across to it. And he said, I'll give you five minutes. And and we're going to be casting off. I can't even guarantee that, but I think we're going to be here yet five minutes. And so she ran across a deck that was already slanted at a dangerous angle. She ran through some of the casino rooms where there was money lying all over the floor. She went down into her stateroom, went into her stateroom. She reached across her, her diamonds and her expensive jewelry up onto the shelf and grabbed three oranges. She ran back the same way she had come. She got back into the boat before it was lowered down. And you think how incredible that is, because 30 minutes earlier she would have chosen, I don't think she would have chosen a crate of oranges over some diamonds, even the smallest diamond. But at that point, death had boarded the Titanic. And one blast of its awful breath had actually transformed all her values and people's values. Instantaneously, like that, priceless things became worthless and worthless things became priceless. And in that moment, she preferred three small oranges to a crate of diamonds. There are certain events in life that transform. And I could look at you right now and say that there are certain things that you know transform lives. The news of an illness. The scare of near death. The loss of someone you love deeply. There are things that begin to transform your values when that breath of illness or death or Whatever it is, a divorce, um, the moving away of someone you love deeply, the loss of something, 
they force you to ask questions that transform the way you look at life. And really what Jesus is doing here is he's saying the return of my, my, my return when I come again is one of those things that you should keep in your mind always because it can happen at any moment and it should transform always the way you look at your life. What are your priorities? What are you truly living for? I think if Jesus was standing here and just gave this story, I think he would look at all of us and say, what are you investing your one and only life that you have been given? What are you investing it in that will make any difference when the breath of death is before you? What are you giving so much energy to? What are you allowing your thoughts to be filled with anxiety about? When you know that this life to come, that Jesus will return. And you know it will make all the difference. So what are your, your, your priorities? The next is be prepared, take responsibility. Jesus seems to make this really clear. He basically says in this parable, in this story, you are responsible for your life and no one else. You can blame your parents. You can blame circumstances. You can say you had some bad breaks. The reality is we have those kind of things that come into our life. We are, we are raised by parents, sometimes by parents that are not really as loving and healthy as you would maybe like, that have a way of, of causing reactions and bending your life, or you come into circumstances you had no control of. You may have been abused. You have these things in your life, but the reality is as you grow older and as you come to a place where you begin to look at that and understand it, he basically says now it's time to take responsibility for your life. You no longer have to react. You can, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the life of God, begin to respond. And so he says, there's some things in life you can't put off that need to be prioritized. In the same way as we look at this, there are some things in life you can't borrow. You need to own up and purchase it for yourself. Verses 6 through 9. At midnight, the cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. Verse 8. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. Verse 9. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. Take responsibility for your life. In fact, you may not even have enough time to do that now. But what we have, we can't give to you. You just can't borrow some things. And Jesus says they failed to prepare because just some things can't be borrowed. For instance, no one, no one else can get you ready to meet your maker. Think about that. There's no one else can do that. You can't kind of slide in by your parents' faith. You can't in some way say, well, I went to this church and they were really good and or, or, or in some way I, I gave money or I, you know, I, I was married to someone who really believed a lot. There's some things just can't be borrowed is what Jesus is saying. And, and, and you are the only one who can do the relational work that gets you right with God and maintains the right relationships with one another. You're the only one. We live in, a, in, a, in an age so often that we place that responsibility on other people. And we say, well, if you would just do this and do this and do that. And it may be there's some things they could do that would make a difference. But the reality is the real difference comes by what you choose. 
No one can fix you. God can't even come in. He will not take your will and begin to shape your will and turn your will. He is too much of a gentleman. He loves you way too much. And he basically, Jesus is saying, as he talks about these virgins, as they get ready for the return of Christ, they see the end of all things. He basically is saying, no one can get you ready to meet your maker. No one can get you in a place that when you leave this life, your accounts are settled with people. Only you can do that. And so I basically just want to kind of make this little call to you right now. Are you right with God? If Jesus was to come today and he was in the middle of this service, we heard those trumpet sound. Would you be ready to meet your maker? And that's a daily kind of thing. You have a choice at one point to turn to God, to receive His grace, to receive the work that Jesus has done on the cross for you, to remove your sins from you. And then it's a daily breathing in confession and and walking in that grace of God that keeps you right with Him. And if, if, if Jesus was to come today, would you, if you were to kind of check out today, are you going to have regrets with some of the people that you know you're not right with? Isn't it amazing the return of Christ? It reminds me somewhat when I stand in funerals and I just, you can almost give the same kind of message. You say, you just don't know when it's going to happen. You might be young. You might be in, a, in, in your 20s or 15 or you may be in your early 30s and you're just thinking, you know what, I got all the time in the world, but no one knows. And so no one can do the work of getting you ready to meet your maker. No one can repent for you. No one can forgive for you. No one can go to someone else and make sure those relationships are reconciled. And no one can build your character for your soul. That's the other thing about this. It's not just about getting the fire insurance to get into heaven someday. It's all about how do you live for him on a day-by-day basis? Are you building your character? Because you know what? When it talks about rewards in heaven, it talks about rewards about being faithful. And faithfulness is about the kind of character that is built. The the greatest, you know, we try and and conquer things, the landscape outside of us. The greatest landscape is that which is inside of you. It's your soul. How much of it is becoming like Jesus? How much of it is, is your heart and life growing in love and joy and peace? Just stop there, those three. No one can do the work of building the character within your soul. Now, a lot of people will want to help you. They make your life really miserable. They can help you. That's supposed to be a little bit of a joke. Anyway, um, but we're the only ones responsible for a spiritual character. I had a number of people when Leslie Frazier came here, coach of the Vikings, and he shared and, and had so many different people say to me, wow, I was amazing. He could just quote verse after verse. He just seems to know the Bible so well. Do you think that just happens? I mean, Leslie Frazier's a bright guy. I know him. But I want to tell you, he has invested time in, in small group studies, in memorizing God's Word, in, in going through difficult circumstances, in doing the hard work of trusting in those moments so that when those other things came later, he was prepared to be able to face them with the faith that had been built in those lesser times. No one can build your own spiritual character. You just can't borrow on someone else's. You ever heard people, they kind of, they'll say to you things like, boy, how did she get that spiritual strength? Or I, I just I wish I had the faith he had. Well, you can have it. It's not some special thing that only certain people get. Every person here has the ability, has the will and the, the mind and the, and, the, and the choice to do this. 
I remember when uh, Jill Zaduski's mother, Barb, shared, and she, she, she shared about her situation, and it wasn't, she, she didn't all of a sudden have all this tremendous faith the day of her diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and the strokes and the heart attack and all the things that came with it. That happened 30 years before when her husband lost her job. And when her husband lost her job in this lesser crisis, she decided to take a notebook. And in that notebook, write down the things that were true so that her mind would dwell on those things. So that when she came in those times when her circumstances weren't going well, maybe things with the kids or maybe things with work or maybe other things, she knew that these things were true and she let her mind begin to be filled with it so that her character became formed by it. And as her character became formed by it, when she met that day, she was ready. There just are some things you can't borrow. You can't borrow this stuff. I, I would, would plead with you. I, I, one of the greatest decisions I made. I thank God for it. I, I was at an Urbana conference when I was in college, and I heard Billy Graham speak, and they asked him a question. What's the greatest thing that's made a difference in your life? He said, the greatest thing that I've ever done is that before I read the paper, before I do anything in the morning, I get up and I spend time in the Word of God and prayer and journal. And I thought that was kind of cool. I did it for a while. And then I came into a season in my life where I was just dry. And I made a commitment that I would get up as early as I was possible to get up. And I'd get up in the morning and I would spend that time before my, my, my one and three-year-old would wake up. And I thank God for that. Because of what I believe it's done in my character. And I just encourage you. You can't borrow that stuff. You've got to do it for yourself. And then and be prepared. You need to act now. Some things can't be put off. You need to prioritize. Some things can't be borrowed, but some things, if you think about it, can be missed. Some opportunities don't come around a second time. And Jesus seems to indicate this. Opportunities are just that. They are a time in which to act. Some opportunities will come and in time go. The difficulty is that we just don't know when that time to act will end. That's what the return of Christ is all about. There's an opportunity right now to live your life in such a way that you can do these things. You can build your character. Verse 10 and 12 stresses this. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Can you imagine what that felt like? Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. The groom was delayed. They thought they had time until they heard the announcement. Behold, the bridegroom. Then they scrambled and without oil, they missed the procession. And when they did arrive, the door was shut. The opportunity had been over. Jesus and Matthew may have been, as he shared this parable, been thinking not just about the first generation, but the generations that could follow. The first generation that Jesus was speaking to here, I believe, thought that Jesus would return. And when they saw the army come around the city of Jerusalem and they saw the temple being destroyed and every breath being knocked down. And when they saw Rome invade all of Palestine, I believe that they thought that Jesus would be coming at any moment. And Paul seems to indicate that. Read through Thessalonians and some of the letters. He is talking about that Jesus is coming immediately. But then in time, as he goes a little longer in his ministry, it shifts and you begin to see that he's wondering about a delay. Not that Jesus can't come at any time, but it seems to be that he's delaying. And he begins to start sharing messages about waiting and watching and working with all you have, giving what you have for Christ and his kingdom. 
And Jesus must have known that we needed this message because some 2,000 years later, it's easy to fool ourselves into thinking there's always tomorrow. I'll put this off. And Jesus seems to indicate, don't put off tomorrow what needs to be done today. That's what this is all about. Act now. Get right with God. Build your character. Develop your spiritual strength. Reach out and do good to that person that you need to do good. Get reconciled with that person that, that the Spirit of God's telling you to get reconciled with. Don't put off an opportunity that's before you. Read your Bible daily. Study God's Word. Get involved with a small group of believers who will challenge you to grow and to walk with Christ. Attend an adult class this fall. Memorize God's Word. Serve with your gifts and talents. If God's given you a dream to do something with your life to impact His kingdom, step into it. I want you to note something really interesting here as you read these three lines from the final parables of Jesus. And these are the last three parables. Notice Jesus is speaking to his followers. What evokes his severest censure, what what brings about his greatest condemnation as he's speaking to him, is not so much that his servant is actively doing wrong, but it is servant's failure to do good when the opportunity to do so is before him. And let me read away a commentator writes. He says, the sin of omissions, the sins of omission are to be more damning than the sins of commission. Those that we omit versus what we commit. The door is shut against, listen to this, the foolish virgins for their negligence. The unenterprising, talented servant in the next parable is cast out as good for nothing, for doing nothing. And those goats on the left are severely punished for failing to notice the many opportunities for showing kindness which had been given to them. As simple as handing a glass of water to someone who's thirsty, of visiting someone in a time of need. Isn't that interesting? I think it's true because the followers of Christ, we get so caught up in looking right, doing the right things and appearing right. But when it comes to being and doing what Jesus did, those are the kind of things that he did. He reached out and did what was right and good. Real faith evidences real fruit. And I think definitely this is a message for the church in every age, in every age where the followers of Jesus, all of us are guilty in this. I am as well may not murder someone or commit adultery or steal from someone, but they can easily hate a politician, look lustfully on the Internet, or be titillated by reading Fifty Shades of Grey, or rob a person's reputation through a few choice words, and I could go on and on. Can live with attitudes that are so unbecoming, and they're really omissions, they're not commissions. But real faith evidence is character and buys up every opportunity to actively do good. It's not about merely trying to guess when Jesus is coming and proclaiming how bad the world is. That's not why Jesus gave us these parables. It's about actively doing what Jesus did by renewing the world around him. Listen to Acts 10.38. I love this verse. You know what has happened throughout Judea, says Peter, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. That's just my prayer for us. I so want to be anointed with the Holy Spirit and power to do the things that God wants to do through us, so that when we see the opportunities, we step into them and we see the power of God change lives and transform people. The last is be prepared always. Don't give up. Don't get tired at what you're doing. 
It's kind of an interesting thing because in Matthew 25, 13, he says, therefore, keep watch. The idea is being alert. Live with this readiness. Always live with this readiness as you do what you're supposed to do because you know this. Because you do not know the day or the hour, but you do know this. Jesus is coming again. He's going to return. So don't give up. 2,000 years may seem like forever, but don't forget. Be encouraged. Be alert. That day will come. Peter says, remember that God is not bound to time as we are. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. He's speaking to some people who are getting tired of waiting. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. And he goes on to say, as some think about slowness. He's not bound to time like us. The day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And so by God's time clock, if you really think about it, it's only been two days since Jesus resurrected. Think about it. It's been two days since Jesus resurrected. And on the third day, he came again. We would quickly lose heart and grow impatient and give up. And I think we're a lot like, I was thinking of this, as we're a lot like kids in the backseat of the cars. We're pulling out of the driveway, as parents are. And as you're getting ready to go on a thousand-mile trip, you're just getting out of the driveway, and they say, are, you, are we there yet? We live in this fast-paced culture, and we're like kids. And Jesus calls us to continue the work he began. This is what this parable is all about. He says we are called to renew the world as we wait for him, just like he did when he ministered here. We're to be out busy doing those things that he wants us to do. We're called to bring renewal to every life and every relationship we can while we have the opportunity to do so. So don't give up. Remain doing what God's called you to do with all the strength, knowing that he could come at any moment. I'm reminded of the faithful, patient work of a guy named Andy in the movie that you may have seen it, The Shawshank Redemption. It's filmed back in 1994 and tells the story of Andy, a man who is wrongly convicted of murdering his wife and her lover. Early in his prison stay, while he's wrestling through this whole thing of being convicted wrongly, Andy approaches a guy named Red, who is an inmate skilled at procuring items for prisoners. You know, one of those guys that gets you what you need. And, and, and Andy said, Red, I'd like a hammer. It seems that uh, when Andy was a free man, he was an amateur geologist, and he thought that he would just occupy his time in prison as being an amateur geologist again. And Red was worried for Andy in one sense, because he was worried that Andy might use it to dig his way out of prison. And Andy laughs at him and says, uh, when you see the hammer, you'll know that's not going to happen. That idea is ludicrous. And sure enough, the hammer is no bigger than the size of an average person's hand. And so soon after he gets his hammer, we see Andy use it to carve his name in the wall. Now fast forward the film much later in the film, and you find that Andy is missing from the prison count one day. The warden tears down a poster that's in Andy's cell, only to discover that there's a tunnel that Andy has dug through the thick walls of the prison. The tunnel gave him access to a drainage pipe running under the prison's perimeter fence. And Andy crawled through the pipe and found freedom on the other side. It turns out that Andy's favorite pastime at night was not geology as much as it was hiding underneath the poster and digging his tunnel. And during the day, he carried the remains of the dirt that he had out of the wall, from that wall into the prison yard and he dumped them. And it would be every day just about two, one or two handfuls. And who knows, think about how many times 
Andy felt like he, what he was doing was just pointless. Think about how often he must have just thought, like, I should just give up. I am not making a difference. Andy's friend, Red, sums up Andy's diligence in his own evaluation of Andy's escape. Here's what he says. I remember thinking it would take a man 600 years to tunnel through the wall with that hammer. Andy did it in less than 20. And 20 years might seem like eternity in our fast-moving society. I don't know what you're applying yourself or what you're working towards or what was going on. We just don't know when Jesus will come, but we're called not to give up because we've been given this life to make a difference in this world that we're called to renew it like Jesus did. And I think he uses this parable to say, be wise and faithful always. Remain at the task God has given you because you do not know when he will return. But the wise servant prioritizes, takes responsibility, acts with the opportunities that he sees before him, and does so again and 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 again, knowing this, Jesus will return. And so I just want to challenge us as a congregation and want you to be thinking about what would you do differently? What would you do differently? What is God calling you to do? He might just tell you, be encouraged, don't give up. And he might be saying to you this morning, you know what? There's some character that needs to be developed, and you're the only one who can take responsibility for it. For some of you, you may be running from God. You may never have been right with God, and you don't know how long you have to live. You don't know what it's going to look like when he returns and when that will be, but we know he will. And he might be saying today, call upon the Lord as your Savior. Repent and ask forgiveness. Be ready when he returns. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray that these words from your parable of these ten virgins and what it means to be prepared would be words that would prepare our hearts where we might need to step forward, where we might need to give our hearts more sacrificially in a certain area. We may be renewed in the sense of your love. That, God, you wouldn't leave us and, and just kind of just surprise us, but you told us to live with this anticipation. The great love that you give is just even manifest in that. That you even let us know that you are coming so that our lives would be different and our lives would look and act and move by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.